So, welcome everyone. Um, I think the good news is that most everyone at the Abbey is recovered from COVID and uh, everybody's well, and we're looking forward to the 20th anniversary on Sunday. And uh, Geshela asked us to do a review this morning, um, recognizing that uh, repetition and, and review is what helps us to deepen our understanding and make strong imprints on our mind stream as we go through what is kind of a difficult topic, this chapter on <laughs> wisdom. So let's start with uh, generating refuge and bodhicitta, then we'll do some breathing meditation, and then I'll set a motivation. So visualizing Buddha Shakyamuni and the space in front, really feeling that we are in the presence of the Buddha. You can leave it a simple visualization like this or a more elaborate refuge field if you are accustomed to doing that. So just notice your posture, adjust your posture if you need to, and we'll just settle into some breathing meditation for a few minutes to settle our minds. In just about every teaching that His Holiness the Dalai Lama gives, he reminds us that the first thing he does when he wakes up is he meditates on um, compassion and bodhicitta and also wisdom. And so this morning we'll be talking about wisdom, and so I thought we'd spend some time cultivating bodhicitta. And one of my favorite verses to turn to is um, a section in Gampopa's Jewel Ornament of Liberation where he leads us through the seven steps of generating bodhicitta. So he begins by saying, wherever there is space, there are sentient beings. So just thinking about not, not only the eight billion human beings on this planet, but thinking of all the animals and insects on the earth, under the earth, in the sky, in the oceans and bodies of water. And something that often comes to my mind when thinking about animals is um, a scientific journal I heard about once estimated that for every human being there are something like 10 to the 23rd 
animals and insects. So that's 10 with 23 zeros behind it. That's a lot of animals and insects for each human being. And it's said that compared to animals, the number of hungry ghosts are similarly uh, greater. And compared to the number of hell beings, um, that number is even greater than the hungry ghosts. So that can help to expand our mind to understand more fully that wherever there is space, there are sentient beings. And wherever there are sentient beings, there are afflictions. So even if they're not manifest, we all have seeds for self-grasping ignorance, self-centeredness, anger, attachment, pride, jealousy, arrogance. So just thinking about our own experience as we go through this reflection. Wherever there are sentient beings, there are afflictions. And wherever there are afflictions, there are negative actions. Negative actions follow. This is often the case. Maybe not pervasive, but often the case. And we can see this in the world around us today. All the wars and conflicts and greed and many of the things we read about in the news. And wherever there are negative actions, suffering follows. There is suffering in our mind every time there's an affliction arising. Our mind is disturbed, and we disturb those around us. And we also place seeds on our mind stream for future suffering. So wherever there are negative actions, suffering follows. And all these beings who are suffering, just like us, all these beings who are suffering have at one time been our mother or father. So thinking about all our past lives, our beginningless past lives, we've had a mother and a father in this life. In the most previous life, we chances are good we had a mother or father. And tracing back, back beginninglessly, can we point to any sentient being and say this mind stream has never played the role of my mother and father? So he says, all these beings who are suffering have at one time been my mother and father, and these parents have been very kind to me. So when we've done this reflection on our own, again and again, that, that has a lot of meaning, brings a lot of feeling. How our parents have brought us into this world and cared for us, taken care of all our needs so that we could survive, and then provided opportunities to help us thrive, protected us from harm, even accumulated a lot of negativities on our behalf and taught us so many things. The fact that we know how to say please and thank you and use a fork and a spoon, this is due to the kindness of our parents. And these kind parents, they are sinking in the ocean of samsara. They're tortured by innumerable sufferings with no one to protect them. Most of them have no valid refuge. 
And there's so much suffering that they are exhausted and overpowered by delusion. So think for a moment how wonderful it would be if they met with peace and happiness, cultivating loving-kindness. How wonderful if each one of them met with peace and happiness. How wonderful if they met with freedom from suffering. So we just spend a moment cultivating loving-kindness and compassion for all these beings. You can think of specific uh, sentient beings in your life. You think of strangers that we rely on every day. Think of those people you find irritating, annoying. And really wish for them to have happiness and be free of suffering. And furthermore, Gampompa says, if we check our own ability to really benefit all these beings, it's quite limited. And so we must aspire to become fully awakened, a fully awakened Buddha who has purified all negativities, uh, cleansed away all faults and developed all good qualities to their utmost extent, and who has um, the enlightened capacity to benefit all beings perfectly. So generate that bodhicitta aspiration in your heart. We can also imagine that that aspiration takes the form of a white moon disk at our heart. And on top of that moon disk, imagine a white Vajra representing um, ultimate bodhicitta, emptiness. And so just reflecting for a moment how this person sitting here cultivating bodhicitta lacks inherent existence. I'm a dependent arising, dependent on causes and parts, dependent on being labeled by the mind. The action of cultivating bodhicitta is also empty. It's made of many causes and conditions all coming together, many parts. And we're labeling this cultivating bodhicitta. So it too lacks inherent existence. That's good news because that means we can cultivate it further and further. And the bodhicitta itself, that mind with the two aspirations, It too lacks inherent existence. It's coming about due to causes and conditions, even contrived, but still coming about due to causes and conditions and the different parts, the different moments, and being labeled by term and conception. And so in this way, in our own small way, we bring together bodhicitta and emptiness 
And we use this as a motivation for listening to these teachings, Shantideva's beautiful teachings on wisdom, chapter 9 of Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And when we have um, bodhicitta as the motivation for any of the perfections or any of the the six qualities that we're trying to cultivate, then they do become perfections. Like anything, when we do a meditation again and again and again, it becomes much richer. And each time we build on um, what we've generated before. So uh, I particularly like that presentation of developing bodhicitta. Okay, so when we started this chapter months ago, I don't remember exactly when, but I had this idea that it would be a, a good plan to try to come up with three or four points from each of the verses to really try to hang on to so that I would have some chance of understanding this um, chapter. And so I've been doing that as I've gone along, and I thought to share some of that today, at least with, we'll see how far we get. I have no idea, but we'll see how far we get. So I've put together some slides. Just I think it will be helpful to have visual confirmation of what we're talking about and it was very easy to, oh, and, and feel free to pull up your old notes too. This is open book review today. <laughs> so um, we'll just do some review and, and um, try to put stronger imprints on our mind stream of what we've been talking about. Okay, so if you put up the slides. So chapter 9 can be divided into these three broad categories, these three broad outlines. And um, the first one is really talking about the necessity for cultivating the wisdom realizing emptiness, and that's just one verse, verse 1. But then the middle part, uh, how to cultivate this wisdom, encompasses verse 2 through 150. So there's a lot included in that middle section. And then there's a concise explanation of how to realize emptiness at the end, verses 151 to 167. Outlines can be so helpful, I think, just to see where we are in the text, where we're going, what we're trying to accomplish in each section. So, um, Then with the next slide, we're, we're looking at this necessity for cultivating the wisdom realizing emptiness. And so the verse says, the sage, and this is Geshe, uh, Chudrak's alteration of the verse, it includes those. The sage taught all these branches of teachings for the sake of generating the wisdom. Therefore, those who wish to pacify suffering of both, self and others, should generate the wisdom. So it begins by talking about the sage taught all the previous branches of teachings. So do you remember what those refer to? The perfections, the previous five perfections, yeah. So another way of thinking about that could be um, all the teachings on serenity in chapter 8 and then coming to the wisdom section. But 
um, the more popular understanding of that is that it refers to the first five perfections. But, you know, even in a broader sense, we could say that all the teachings of the Buddha really are aimed at take, bringing us to the goal of full awakening. And so, actually, we'd say that all the teachings of the Buddha, either directly or indirectly, prepare us for understanding emptiness, right? So, there are many ways we can understand these branches. And then for the sake of generating the wisdom, so what kind of wisdom is being spoken of here? Hearing and thinking. The wisdom of hearing and thinking. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the wisdom of hearing, thinking, and meditating is probably considered what's held in common for the, um, um, not the lower scope, what's the, the individual scope? No, the... Fundamental scope, thank you, and the universal uh, vehicle. Um, but there was another kind of wisdom that is really being highlighted in this text in general, but also particularly in this chapter. Do you remember? Uh, rising from meditation. No, actually, uh, Gishi Chodak made a point to say that it it's not the general wisdom of hearing, reflection, and meditation, because those don't necessarily depend on um, bodhicitta and the five perfections. So how he termed it was, this is the wisdom of bodhisattvas. This is the wisdom of beings who want to lead all sentient beings to full awakening. So when we look at that second line, what kind of, so what kind of wisdom, for the sake of generating the wisdom, it's not just general wisdom, but it's the wisdom that's motivated by bodhicitta and the five perfections that will lead to full awakening. And to do this, um, we have to be Free from, free from samsara. So we do need that wisdom of hearing, thinking, and meditating. That's a basis. And that will help anyone uproot the afflictive obscurations. So think about what's included when we talk about the afflictive obscurations. What's included there? Afflictions and their seeds. Right. And, um, and that leads to personal liberation. When someone can uproot those, that person can achieve personal liberation, like an arhat, a fundamental vehicle arhat. Um, but here we're talking about to, to attain the full awakening of others' benefit, we also must uproot the cognitive obscurations. And so what's included in the cognitive obscurations? The latencies and the appearance the latencies themselves and the, that give rise to these appearances of true existence. And there's one more that's often um, talked about in tenant texts. Anybody remember that? It's the taints of apprehending the two truths as different entities. And that comes up in the next verse when we talk about the two truths. So these three things are considered uh, for the Prasangika Madhyamaka school, these these three things are included when we talk about cognitive obscurations. Okay, so the wisdom that can uproot the subtle cognitive obscurations must be preceded by bodhicitta and the first five perfections. And so this is a unique tenet of the universal, not only the universal vehicle, but the Prasangika Madhyamaka uh, school of tenets. So. I don't remember when I did the last review, um, maybe three weeks ago, but there was a chart that was included in that. So that's good to hang on to that chart and go back and really try to understand what, what, what are the four schools? What is it that the four schools assert in terms of 
coarse self a person, coarse selfless as a person, subtle self a person, subtle selfless as a person, and the same thing for coarse and subtle selflessness of phenomena. And then, uh, so therefore, those who wish to pacify suffering of both. And this was a kind of a tricky point. Remember, Geshe-la was talking about how there's, there was a Tibetan word or particle, I don't know what the phrase would be, but it, it, it alluded to that there were two things that were being talked about here, not just suffering, and certainly not just the ouch kind of suffering, but the most subtle type, type of suffering and suffering of self and others. So we can accomplish our own welfare, as we've just been talking about. We can accomplish our own welfare by just removing the afflictive obscurations. But someone who wants to accomplish the welfare of others also needs to remove the co- subtle cognitive obscurations. So, you know, when we hear these phrases, then we try to draw together whatever it is that we know about that, that topic. So thinking about how the afflictive obscurations for the bodhisattvas and again, from the Prasangika point of view, bodhisattvas are removing the afflictive obscurations first on grounds one through seven. By the time they get to the eighth ground, they've removed all the afflictive obscurations. And that's when they can then begin removing the cognitive obscurations on the grounds eight, nine, and ten. And that's what culminates in Buddhahood. Okay, so therefore, those who wish to pacify suffering of both should generate the wisdom. So Shantideva is referring to the wisdom that understands subtle dependent origination and emptiness as put forth by the Prasangika Madhyamaka. So what this is referring to, Geshe-la brought up at this point that one necessarily needs to realize the subtle selflessness of person, but also the subtle selflessness of phenomena, as asserted by the Prasangikas, um, because this is an interesting point for them. Both of these are considered afflictive obscurations. Um, I think, turn to the next slide. Yeah. Both of these are considered afflictive obscurations, where that's not true for other schools. So up here, I just have the um, the, the Mahayana schools, Chittamatras, Svatandraka, Madhyamaka, Prasangika, Madhyamaka, And if we look at what is it that they um, assert as afflictive obscurations, this this, um, is a little bit different than the chart that I put up last time. So here we're not just looking at what they assert as selflessness of person and selflessness of phenomena, but what is it they assert as afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations, you know, in general. So for the Chittamantrans, and Svatantrikas, actually everyone below the Prasangikas, afflictive obscurations would be grasping at the self of person. And that would be grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. Notice how um, that's different for the Prasangikas. They say grasping at a self of person and grasping at a self of phenomena, meaning, meaning grasping at any inherent existence is an afflictive obscuration. So that's a unique point of that tenant system. That's interesting to think about. And then if we look at the cognitive obscurations, Chittamantrans say grasping at the self-phenomena is a cognitive obscuration, and they have their own unique way. They're the first school who starts asserting selflessness of phenomena. The two lower schools don't, don't assert a selflessness of phenomena. They say phenomena exists. It truly exists the way it appears. But when we get to these 
um, universal vehicle schools, then um, they begin asserting a cognitive obscuration. And then if you look at the Svatandrika, Madhyamaka, their uh, cognitive obscuration, uh, at least for the yogic ones, is grasping at a self of phenomena, meaning grasping at something being truly existent, existing by way of its own unique mode of subsistence without also depending on a, on a valid mind. Okay, and then compare that with the prasangikas, where they say cognitive obscurations are not graspings. They're these more subtle things. Mistaken appearances of true existence, as you said, and the imprints left by conceptions of true existence, and then the taints of apprehending the two truths as different entities, remembering that only a Buddha um, sees the two truths as one entity in simultaneously. In that. So verse 1 um, on one hand, seems very straightforward, and there's so much implied in these words. Um, so hopefully there are three or four things there that you can hang on to uh, about verse 1 and remembering you know, why it is, why it's necessary for us to uh, realize wisdom, realize this wisdom. So the upshot of this is that for the prasangikas, they say that everyone must realize the subtle selflessness of phenomena to realize emptiness. That's a unique point. Um, hearers, solitary realizers of the fundamental vehicle and bodhisattvas, all, all of those beings need to realize the subtle selflessness of phenomena. Okay. Then the second section... This large section of chapter 9 is a detailed explanation of how to cultivate this wisdom. And so it begins with um, talking about ascertaining the two truths. Um, and so verse 2 reads, Conventional and ultimate, excuse me, <clears throat> these are accepted as being the two truths. The ultimate is not the direct object of dualistic mind, the dualistic mind is spoken of in relation to the conventional truth. And I've added the Sanskrit words, sambhiti, sambhiti, sambhiti. In the next slide. So we can look at this uh, in terms of scriptural sources, but also in terms of reasoning. So Geshe-la, um, in, in the commentaries that he's relying on, he uh, brought up the meeting between Father and Son Sutra, and um, there's a quote there that says, the Tathagatas thoroughly understand conventionalities and ultimates. Also, object of knowledge are exhausted in the two truths. So th this quote is um, has a lot of meaning. So it's the Buddha who's saying that the Tathagatas thoroughly understand both conventional truths and ultimate truths, and also, what is the basis that's being divided into the two truths? Because there was some debate um, in later years after the Buddha, what was the basis that was being uh, divided? So he says very clearly there, it's the objects of knowledge. So drawing back from our study of tenets, you know, we can think about all those synonyms that we learned about objects of knowledge. Object, object of knowledge, existent, established base, Object of comprehension, object of comprehension of an omniscient mind, 
um, hidden phenomena. There's one more. Oh, phenomena. Okay. So then the next one. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. So we, if we ask, what is it that when divided gives us these two truths? Um, Sankapa spent a lot of time in the illumination. We'll come to this eventually, clarifying this in the illumination of the thought, that although there are many different ways of asserting what the basis of the division of the two truths is, here it's taken to be objects of knowledge. And he says, he points to this um, verse that we just looked at in Meeting of the Father and Son Sutra. And since every everything that exists is an object of knowledge, then every existent must be one or another of the two truths. There's no third category. Okay, so then here's another quote uh, from that same sutra, where the Buddha says, He who knows the world without listening to others teaches with just these two truths, conventionalities and ultimates. There is no third truth. So that's very clear, right from the Buddha's lips. <laughs> All right, and then um, there's some other quotes that kind of support this, the... Um, the pundits that came after the Buddha. So the next slide. Here's one from Nagarjuna's uh, treatise on the Middle Way. Nagarjuna is like the the philosophical pioneer of the Madhyamaka system, and so he was. He also proclaimed a lot about the importance of the two truths. There's a chapter in the treatise, chapter 24, on the two truths. So he says the doctrines that Buddha taught are based upon two truths: worldly conventional truths and truths that are ultimate objects. Those who do not know the distinction between the two truths do not know the profound suchness in Buddha's teachings. So hopefully this will become more clear as we talk a little bit more about the two truths. Why is this so important? Um, why is it important to understand the two truths? And, you know, Geshe very quickly took us through the different presentations of tenets, uh, presentation of the two truths in the four tenant schools. We didn't spend much time on that, but it is like a progression. You know, these tenant schools are like a ladder, and the different schools are like rungs on the ladder that help us move from coarse understandings to more subtle understandings. If we don't understand what exists and how it exists, and specifically, yeah, we won't know if we make a mistake in understanding how something exists. We won't understand the fundamental ignorance that we have. And then how can we remove the fundamental ignorance? So that's one way of thinking about why these two truths are so very important. It's the second verse. that That is a place of import that we should pay attention to. Why Thinking about why is it important for me as a practitioner to understand these two truths. And we'll talk more about that. Okay, the next slide. Then in, in Chandrakirti's supplement to the fundamental wisdom, he says, he, he combines now the two truths and the four truths. He says, here the truths of suffering, origin, and path are included within concealer truths or veiled truths, conventional truths. There are many different words that are used to translate this Sanskrit word, samvritti. And true cessations are entities of ultimate truths. Similarly, any other truth that exists at all is definitely only included within these two truths. So you might think, okay, I got it already <laughs> enough. Um, but, you know, if you think about people who were, had different philosophical views, they would be holding very tight, tightly, very 
strongly to their views. And so there was a lot of debate that went on since the time of the Buddha about these points. Okay, next slide. So um, as uh, Nagarjuna said, to know the difference between conventional or veiled truths and ultimate truths is to know the essence of the Buddha's teachings, the principle of profound dependent arising. And um, I was reading uh, in one commentary by His Holiness, he talked about how the more we understand about how conventional things exist, like thinking about, really thinking about their causes and conditions and their parts and how they're labeled by mind, the more we understand that, the more we naturally understand how they naturally exist and how they don't exist. Um, so understanding more about conventional truths, how they're known, how they're misunderstood, helps us to understand the fundamental ignorance that we're up against. So it's important to know what exists so that we can investigate how these things exist, how they exist conventionally when we're not analyzing them, and how they exist when we're looking into their final nature, their ultimate nature under with ultimate analysis. So it's important to uh, think about how ultimate truths are non-deceptive. They are non-mistaken. And so what's included in ultimate truths? Well, selflessness of person, selflessness of phenomena, those are ultimate truths, aren't they? And veiled truths are considered deceptive. There's some mistake about veiled truths. And if we think about it, we've heard this cascade before, that ignorance that is the concealing or the veiling consciousness, that gives rise to different afflictions. And those afflictions, like we found in the meditation this morning, those afflictions also give rise to uh, contaminated actions, and those contaminated actions then is what propels cyclic existence. So right there we can see how these are connected with, why is this important to us? Because we want to be happy. <laughs> we want to find lasting happiness. And um, these two truths are definitely connected with our daily lives and how um, understanding this ignorance will help us to cut that chain and come out of suffering. So just take a moment to reflect your, for yourself. Were you aware of any, any objects, deceptive appearance this morning? You know, did you look at your breakfast and say, oh, that looks inherently delicious, but I know it can't be because it's a conventional truth. It's deceptive. You know, that's the kind of understanding that we can cultivate is to understand that everything that we can see with our sense consciousnesses in particular, and most of the things we think about with our mental consciousness, all of these are appear deceptive to us because they have this appearance of inherent existence. So that, and I think um, Jeffrey Hopkins in his book, Emptiness Yoga, talked about how he trained himself to think about whenever he'd look at something, he'd say, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong you know, trying to bring that point home, we're engaging with conventional objects, veiled objects, all day long. But do we have any kind of awareness that this does not exist the way it appears? So we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about truths. So there's really, there's a lot there to think about. Okay, the, ne uh, the next slide, please. I thought to mention two resources um, that I, I have found really helpful over the years. One is um, a very small paperback book called Appearance and Reality 
The Two Truths in the Four Buddhist Tenet Systems by Guy Newland. It's a very good book, very good summary, very concise and clear. And then he has a, l- a larger book called The Two Truths. It's also more of an academic read, but you know you can skip over some of the things that are more technical and just get the, the highlights if, if that's helpful. And also, uh, Volume 7, Searching for the Self, gives an overview of Buddhist tenet systems, if people are still trying to get their heads wrapped around that as well. Okay, so that's pretty much looking at um, the scriptural sources for the two truths. And then the next slide, we'll talk about the reasoning. So I found this nice quote, uh, In Appearance and Reality, The Two Truths in the Four Buddhist Tenet Systems, that I thought really explained in a nice, concise way um, some of the reasoning of why why it is we want to understand the two truths, So, or why there are these two truths. He says, we can take anything exi- anything that exists and ask, is this a conventional truth or an ultimate truth? Some of the most important things, like emptiness, are extremely difficult to penetrate. And there are some things, such as the subtlest detail of the relationship between a specific action and its moral effect that only Buddhas can know. However, even before one has become a bodhisattva, it is possible to realize the most profound emptiness and ultimate truth through the skillful use of reasoning within meditation. So there he's talking about sharp faculty um, beings, probably, and he's talking about a conceptual realization of emptiness. He says, moreover, each sentient being can and should aspire to transform his or her mind into the omniscient wisdom consciousness of a Buddha, a Dharmakaya, a mind that simultaneously and directly knows everything that exists, every ultimate truth and every conventional truth simultaneously. Thus, the two truths are two types of things that we can know and that we should aspire to know. I thought that was a nice quote. Again, why? Why should we want to know this? Because at the deepest level of our very being, all of us have this innate longing to be happy. And so this is what Buddhism, um, this is the depth and breadth and the profoundness of what Buddhism has to offer us, is to find this lasting happiness of omniscience. Okay, so then the next slide um, highlights some of the things that Geshe shared with us about the two truths, and thinking about their reasoning. They're an exhaustive division, like we've seen in some of the quotes. They're an exhaustive division of all phenomena, all objects of knowledge. The two are comprehensive. We can't remove anything. We can't remove either one of those truths. And anything more would be unnecessary. There's not a third truth. And so this is something that we need to investigate, you know, thinking about all the things that exist. He also said that the two truths are mutually exclusive. There's no common locus. There's nothing that is both an ultimate truth and a conventional truth. Still, the two truths are one nature, different isolates. So that's a kind of a difficult concept. But like, for example, every veiled truth, every veiled truth is inextricably bound with its particular ultimate truth, its particular emptiness in the same place and the same time, same time. So as soon as we have a striker, as soon as a striker for the gong is generated, the emptiness of the striker is also generated at the same time. Um, the table is a concealer truth, a veiled truth, and the table's emptiness is an ultimate truth. These two things exist together. There can't be one without the other. 
And, um, you know, this kind of ties into what we recite every night in the Heart Sutra. Form is empty. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is not other than emptiness. These two truths are very, very close and yet very, very distinct. So it warrants a lot of um, thinking about. Okay, next slide. So truths, what is a truth? Now here in, in philosophy, we're using this word in a very particular way. A truth is defined as an object that exists the way it appears. And we've probably heard before that only emptiness is an object that exists the way it appears. Um, so an, an emptiness is an ultimate truth because it exists the way it appears to a reliable cognition, meaning um, as empty of inherent existence or lacking inherent existence. It's said that emptiness is the object of highest wisdom, and through wisdom realizing emptiness, all obscurations can be eliminated. So that means that all objects other than emptiness don't exist the way they appear. So think about that. Everything that you view today doesn't exist the way it appears. There's this subtle appearance of inherent existence that we are just so familiar with that we don't even question, most of us, unless we've come in contact with teachings. And even then it's difficult, isn't it? We have to remember, we have to be mindful to question how things exist, especially when there's a strong uh, emotion involved, a disturbing emotion, attachment, it's inherently beautiful, attractive, wonderful, delicious, good. Um, if it's bad, it's inherently bad, awful, unattractive. So um, these veiled truths are not actually truths, are they? Because they don't exist the way they appear. They're falsities. So they're just labeled veiled truths. They're not truths, but they're given that name in comparison to ultimate truths. They're falsities. They're truths only for an ignorant consciousness. So while they can be known by valid cognitions, there's also this ignorance in our mind that is giving this appearance of inherent existence. Okay, then the next slide. So, um, to contrast these two, ultimate truths are known by ultimate reliable cognizers. Remember when we talked about reliable cognizers back in volume two? Might be good to go back and review those um, because we, the more we talk about emptiness, the more we'll be talking about reliable cognizers. Um, the Sutra School says a reliable cognizer is a new incontrovertible, incontrovertible knower, but from the prasanga Prasangika point of view, it doesn't have to be new. It's just an incontrovertible or non-deceptive knower. So ultimate truths are objects known by ultimate reliable cognizers, a wisdom directly realizing emptiness, and therefore they are non-deceptive. There's no deceiving in what appears and what exists. Where veiled truths are objects known by conventional valid cognizers. You know, we can use our senses. Our senses can be valid cognizers for knowing a color, a shape, a sound, etc. But there's always going to be this mistaken appearance of inherent existence that comes along with it because of the ignorance. So veiled truths are phenomena that are wrongly perceived to be truths by ignorant concealing or veiling consciousnesses. And these, these veiling consciousnesses are just part and parcel of our very being, aren't they? Um, they, they come along with all the other consciousnesses that we have, even the valid 
conventional consciousnesses. We didn't talk about the definitions of ultimate and conventional truths, but let's just uh, look at those briefly. So an ultimate truth is an object. It's an object found by a valid cognizer analyzing the ultimate. In other words, a person has to be analyzing the final nature of something that you would use an ultimate valid cognition, reliable cognition to do that. So you're not going to find a conventional object or a veiled object because you're not looking for it. That's, that's not an object of the purview of a, a valid cognizer analyzing ultimate. So the first part of that definition would probably be enough to hang on to. It's an object found by a valid cognizer analyzing the ultimate. But what about Buddhas? You know, we'd have to add the rest of the definition to exclude, to make it true also for Buddhas. So that's why it's a long definition. <laughs> okay. And then conventional truths. It's an object found by a valid cognizer analyzing the conventional. So valid cognizers analyzing the conventional are not looking for emptiness. They're not looking for the final nature of something. They're looking to know what is the conventional nature of this object. Okay, then the next slide, please. So we're continuing with the verse where the line says, the ultimate is not the direct object of dualistic mind. Do you remember that section? And Geshe Chudrak uh, outlined three different types of dualistic appearances that appear to most minds, or that don't appear more more directly, don't appear. When emptiness is directly realized in meditative equipoise, it's realized in an utterly non-dualistic manner. So what does that what does that mean? It means without any appearance of subject and object, like there's a mind or there's a person over here uh, and engaging an object over there, emptiness. You know, we talk about it's like pouring water into water or water poured into water. It becomes like one Without any appearance of conventional phenomena, um, it understands that that um, that meditative equipoise understands emptiness of the mind, as you know, for an example. But mind does not appear; only emptiness appears. It's understanding the emptiness of mind, but only emptiness is appearing to that mind. So, no conventional phenomena like mind or cup or whatever the case may be. Okay, and then without any appearance of inherent existence or true existence. And only an Arya's meditative equipoise on emptiness has this feature, right? That there's no appearance of any inherent existence. It's the only non-mistaken consciousness that a person can have. All other phenomena, like veiled truths, conventional truths, can't bear themselves in the face of a meditative equipoise. They, they won't show up. Okay, then the next. So this dualistic mind is spoken of in relation to conventional truths, um, or this, this Sanskrit word, samvriti. And in, in his book, Two Truths, um, by Guy Newland, he talks about what that term actually means, particularly from the Madhyamaka point of view. So Chandakirti, um, spelled this out in his text, The Clear Words, that this word can be used in three different ways. And so it's important to know how it's being used in different contexts. So 
samvriti means entirely obscuring. So that means it's referring to the ignorance that is the concealer or ignorance that is concealing because it entirely covers up the suchness of things, the ultimate nature of things, the final nature. Or samvriti means interdependence. It has this sense of due to being interdependent. Or samvriti means term or conventions. It has the character of expression and expressed or consciousness and object of consciousness. Okay, so go to the next one. This is important when we think about the different schools. Um, for instance, that which conceals or veils, that, that is how the mind only, the Chittamantras and the Madhyamakas are going to use this term when they talk about uh, concealer truths or veiled truths. Um, because for each one of those schools, there's, there's something that's being veiled. That's why they're, they're asserting this, uh, selflessness of phenomena. You know, there's some mistaken aspect to how phenomena are perceived. This term interdependent, I, I, it's complicated when you read about it. It was not really clear to me because we could say this also applies to emptiness. Emptiness is also a interdependent phenomena. But this is not the definition. This is not a definition, and it doesn't apply to ultimate truth. So I don't know why it's included, but I guess there are some some texts that include this interdependent. And then worldly conventions, like a term or worldly convention, the objective referent for terms and consciousness, this is how the two lower schools are using the term. So great exposition, subtrantikas, they're using the term in this way. I just wanted to point out that you have the term samvirti is uh, S-A-M-V-R-T-I. Uh-huh. It's not S-A-M. Hmm? You, just, you have an extra I in there a number of times. You have it once. Oh, right? yes, but, you're right. Yeah, it's the Sanskrit okay. is a little off. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll correct that on the slide. Yeah, thank you. No, that one I. That's probably that. just my... Um, unconscious mind wanting to fill in a, yeah. a vowel. <laughs> like, how do you say that if there's no I there? Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, next slide. So if we think about the two lower schools, the Vibhashikas and the Sautrantikas, they say there appears to be an independent world, an objective world, and that's, that's how the world exists. So they're talking about conventions. You know, when they talk about these are conventional truths for them, and they do describe them differently, um, but they're talking about the things that that are conventionally known in the world. Then with the Chittamantrans, you know, they say there seems to be an external world, but they say there's no external world. It's all coming from the latencies on the mind. Um, and so everything is really a mental projection, but the mind truly exists. So they're using this term more in terms of um, concealed or uh, veiled. And then if we think about the Svatantrika Madhyamakas, they're the ones who say that things exist 50-50. There's something from the side of the object. They say objects inherently exist, but there also has to be something from the side of the mind. So they still give a little bit too much objectivity to the mind. So they haven't quite found the most subtle object of negation. But for the Prasangikas, they just say there is no inherent existence, there's no true existence, there's no existence from its own side, by way of its own characteristic, no intrinsic existence at all. 
but things still function. So I just, I keep trying to understand that for the lower schools, inherent existence is apprehendable. That's the nature of things. When if you things get, didn't inherently exist, they wouldn't, they wouldn't exist, exist at, all. at all, right? That's what and then the Prasangika, Madhyamika, and to some extent the Svatantrika, because I try to, when I try to get up in the morning, you say it's wrong, it's wrong like Jeffrey does. Inherent existence for the prasankhya does not exist at all. But what we're, but it's, but that appearance is based on something that does exist. So I try to the always understand exists. that yeah. I'm seeing somewhat, I'm, there's a valid something going on there. I mean, I wouldn't be able to, to comprehend or apprehend anything if it didn't conventionally exist. But I think it inherently exists, but the basis is still a valid object of apprehension. Yes, but this is where Venerable warns us to be really careful. Because, yes, there is a valid... Something. Yeah, there's a basis there. There's a basis of designation. And then we just put this label on it. Right. And then it, it still... appears to us, and then it appears inherently existent to us. Right. So, yes, there is a basis of designation, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to be careful not to assign too much objectivity to the basis itself. But not to go to the extreme, which I have a really hard time with nihilism. I don't think I'll ever be a nihilist in any life. But to uh-huh. then believe that there's nothing there, that this is all a hallucination, this is all so non-existent. The you know? hallucination is the inherent existence. Inherent existence does not exist, as you said. Or appear. But No, it does appear. Well, I mean, uh, it doesn't exist, right? It does appear. It doesn't exist, but it appears because there is an ignorant consciousness that is causing it to appear because of grasping that we've done in previous times. Right. Because of all that grasping we've done, we have this these cognitive obscurations that then show up as something Appearances. existing. Yeah, an appearance of inherent existence. So what she's and warning us to it. is not to just switch the terms. It, you're, I'm still looking at inherent existence, but I'm saying, but there's a conventional exactly. basis of designation, which also, I happen to think is inherently existent. Right. I have received this correction from her okay. a few times. So <laughs> it has stuck in my mind. At least it's intellectually stuck in my mind. I'm not sure I do it very often, but yeah. Um, and this is the beauty of coming back to that most subtle dependent arising and really thinking about how there is a basis of designation here, which is just merely imputed to be something. And even that basis of designation is, even the parts of the basis of designation are merely imputed on their basis of designation. There's an infinite regress there, that there's nothing, there's no smallest particle, there's no, you know, even though we talk about atoms, even those can be broken down into smaller, smaller, smaller parts. Okay, so why are we making such a big fuss about this verse and these two truths? (laughs) Because for developing wisdom, understanding the two truths is essential. We have to know what exists in a m- erroneous way and what exists in a truthful way, in a correct way, in a non-erroneous, non-deceptive way. Because then we'll be able to identify this ignorance more clearly so that we can cut it. As long as there is any ignorance grasping at any amount of inherent existence, there will be cyclic existence and suffering. Okay, so this is a very important verse, and and that's why I decided to spend more time on it this morning. Um, Conventional and ultimate, these are accepted as being the two truths. The ultimate is not the direct object of a dualistic mind, 
the dualistic mind is spoken of in relation to the conventional, conventional truth or some some riti without the eye. So, um, yeah, hopefully something there that you can pull out to think about the two truths, why it's important for each of us individually, not just intellectually. This is not just an intellectual exercise, but, you know, each one of us wanting, aspiring, longing to find happiness. This is necessary. That's why all the Buddha's teachings lead to understanding emptiness and attaining full awakening. So we'll creep, creep along to verse 3. It says, in light of that, the world is seen to be of two types, yogis and common ordinary people. And regarding that, the world of common people is undermined by the world of the yogis. Sorry, I'm, I'm probably talking a little too fast. And maybe before we go to this third verse, were there any other questions that came up in thinking about that? second verse or talking about the two truths. Um, keep in mind those two um, resources. We have them in our library. They're available as ebooks. Okay, we'll go on to verse 3 then. In light of that, the world is seen to be of two types, yogis and common ordinary people. And regarding that, the world of common people is undermined by the world of the yogis. So as we've seen for developing wisdom, understanding the two truths is essential, and there's a big difference between how yogis and non-yogis understand the two truths. That's the point that's being made here. So next slide. looking at the commentaries that he was relying on. Then Geshe-la spelled out yogis at the very least as being Arya beings, um, Aryas with wisdom directly realizing or non-conceptually realizing emptiness. But we could say that it also includes secondary members, uh, like those who have developed a conceptual realization of emptiness, even those on the path of accumulation and preparation. I'm assuming he, he meant the bodhisattva path, but... I don't, I'm not sure. And, um, and even those pursue, pursuing understanding of emptiness in a correct way. So we can think about per, a person with a correct consciousness, correctly assuming consciousness. We think about this in terms of the seven types of awareness. So those are yogis. And, you know, that's a nice, clear distinction to be made about yogis because sometimes this word is just thrown out there like, oh, he's a yogi, she's a yogi. Well, maybe. <laughs> Uh, there's there's some criteria that we need to look at. And then common beings are those with a distorted understanding of how things exist. So particularly here in this context, these common beings were equated with realists, those who still assert some level of true existence. And then it also can include secondary members like just ordinary beings who haven't been influenced by any kind of philosophical thinking at all. Okay, then the next slide. That, that's all I... Um, maybe you have other things in your notes that you can pull out from 
uh, verse 3, but those seem to be the, the main points. That was kind of a, um, a quick slide through verse 3. And then verse 4. Through differences in their intelligence, the views of yogis too are undermined by progressively higher ones. So just looking at those first two lines, do you remember how Geshe-la glossed the understanding of that? That each higher school progressively refutes the lower school's tenets, or he, each higher level yogi can refute the, uh, the tenets of the yogi on the next lower rung from them. And then uh, the last two lines in that verse, by means of examples accepted by both, emptiness is established. Unanalyzed practitioners engage in trainings for the sake of the result. So here the Madhyamakas are using commonly accepted analogies um, to assert their ideas. Okay, since so slide 22. This is where Geshe started talking about uh, really going into a lot more detail about the tenant schools. Um, and this is what inspired me to come up with that chart that I shared last time. So if we think about it, the, the two lower schools, the Baibashikas, sorry, I've used, I've, I've used the English um, acronyms there instead of the, the Sanskrit. So the Baibashikas and the Sautrantikas assert a self of phenomena. They're proponents of external existence. They think the world is real. They say the world is real. They do assert selflessness as a person, and that's what a person needs to overcome samsara. But they assert that phenomena truly exist. And then if we were to include the Chittamatrans to that group, uh, Baibashika, Sautrantika, and Chittamatrans, then this next group would be termed realists or proponents of true existence. That's what they have in common. They have different ideas about what true existence is, but all of them to one degree or another uh, propound true existence. The fact that things are functional is a reason for them that they truly exist, at least for the, the Chittamantrans. For the Chittamantrans, if things don't truly exist, they don't exist. So there are some overlap in these terms, inherent existence, true existence, it's, we tried to get Geshe Chidrak to really parse out what each of these terms mean in each of the schools, and um, it didn't happen. So it's left up to us in our studies of tenants to try to do that. Then for the, the Madhyamaka, the Middle Way schools, all Middle Way schools, both Middle Way schools and all their sub-schools refute to true existence. So Svatandrikas refute true existence, but they still accept inherent existence. It's so odd. They, they have different ways of understanding what these things mean. Um, for them, inherent existence means existence, but true existence is where they, yeah, I, I, I would have a hard time explaining the difference between their explanation of true existence. It's something, there's something coming from the side of the object, and there's also something coming from the side of the mind, and that's what allows something to be existent. Um, whereas for the prasangikas, they say nothing inherently exists or tru truly exists because it's all merely imputed uh, due to language and conception when you really get down to the finest level of looking at the object of negation. Huh? 
Um, oh, sorry. So let me introduce you to my acronyms. Inherent existence, true existence, existing by way of its own characteristic. <laughs> when you take a lot of notes with tenets, you have to abbreviate. Otherwise, you'll miss what's going on. And EFOS, existing from its own side. <laughs> yeah. IE could mean intrinsic existence or inherent existence, but um, yeah, either one. So in this structured scheme, why, why are we looking at this structured scheme of tenets? Because the main goal is to nail down what is this ignorance that we're plagued by? What is the culprit of our predicament? And to try to stop it, to try to find an antidote that will exactly um, counteract it. Uh, so we need to recognize ignorance presence and the destruction it brings through the afflictions and the negative actions. And then eventually we need to identify this in our own experience more and more. Geshe was emphasizing this in these um, middle verses, or these uh, verse 3 and verse 4. Okay, so here we're starting to refute these realists. And so realists say there's no problem with things existing truly as they appear. But Madhyamakas refer to common examples of disparity between appearance and existence. They don't even have to go to really subtle examples. They can just talk about mirages and reflections of a face in a mirror or moon and water, a magician's illusion, things like this. So these common examples demonstrate that, that these things are not truly existent. Otherwise, they would exist as they appear. There should be a, the word appear there. Up here. I can't put it in now, but I'll put it in my notes and fix it later. So probably they're trying to find the most simple way of pointing out the errors of the different schools, the lower schools, um, not, not yet relying on some of the more refined um, debate techniques or consequences, things like this, just starting out in a way that ordinary beings would understand. So as, as I said, to realist, they, to say that things don't truly exist would mean that they don't exist at all because they say that their individual embedded functionality, because of their individual embedded functionality and capacity, something functions, therefore it exists, that means it truly exists. How could cause and effect work for them if causes like the act of generosity don't truly exist? There could be no act of generosity, no result like awakening. That was the argument that they were putting forward that was behind uh, the, verses, the verse that we just read. And then the Madhyamakas come back and, and say they accept that phenomena are diverse, they're different, they function, but that's only true when unanalyzed in the face of non-analysis. So on a conventional level, that's true. But when we start talking about looking at the final nature of things, then that's not going to hold up, is it? Things do function, but they also lack inherent existence. In fact, they only function because they lack inherent existence. I'm not sure. Do I have a verse 5 uh, slide? No, that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, I've talked a lot faster than I thought I would. So um, let's see. We can talk about verse 5 as well. We just won't have a, a slide for it right now. And then we'll have done five of the 15 verses that we've covered so far, and then hopefully we have some things to hang on to. So verse 5 says, The common world sees functional things and conceives them to be truly existent, not like an illusion, 
In this regard, there is dispute between the yogis and the common world. So realists say, you should see that things are functional. That's what we call truly existent. How can you deny that? You can see it. You must accept that things exist, are also truly existent. They have an intrinsic capacity to function, a truly existent capacity to function. So this is because for the Chittamandra school, they have not yet fully penetrated the subtle selflessness of phenomena. If you think about what they assert as selflessness of phenomena, they don't even have a course in subtle, they just have selflessness of phenomena. It's um, an object and the mind apprehending that object as being empty of being distinct substances. Um, so that's, that's still at a very coarse level of accepting. They, they say that other-powered phenomena truly exist. The prasangikas agree that things are different and functional, but due to being dependent on mere contingency, you know, just being merely labeled by the mind, they lack true existence. So we disagree with them, not because we deny conventional reality, functionality, or apprehension of things, but there's a difference in how we see things as being able to function. They, see, they say things function because they truly exist. They have some true existence in them that functions. We say things function because they lack true existence. That's what allows them to change and to function. Okay. I think actually it will be helpful to have slides with the rest of this verse. So maybe we'll just pause there. And um, how did this land? Was it helpful? Did you remember some things that maybe hadn't been jogged in a while or one of the things that I find that's so helpful is that I love the Prasankhika and Badyamaka, but I'm a Satrantika. I mean I mean to see to really accept the fact that I'm nowhere I can intellectually know what the Prasankhika Madhyamaka say about existence. But when I look at my life and I look at the world I can I understand the importance of being able to dif to differentiate what the different tenets mean as far as what is it I'm actually seeing the difference between the two truths. So to have the, the reality check of how I perceive things and to know what I'm aspiring to be able to perceive someday in meditative equipoise and whatever is, it has humbled me a lot to see that, that mm. this is really where I am. And that's why I suffer so much <laughs> because I see things as inherently existent. I see enemies, I see friends, I see strangers, I see the self. So it's a reassuring process to know that I'm working my way up this ladder and I might be on these rungs for a long time, but I know what I'm going for. And so these reviews are really helpful to <laughs> continually put my, my present experience in a context that's a progression rather than I'm stuck someplace. Wonderful. You know? So yeah. anyway, so these are, these are really helpful. For them. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I was surprised in going through my notes how many times uh, Geshe Chudrak said, we can know this, but we need to know this in our own experience. So you're on the right track there. And it's true for most of us. I mean, we might have moments where we're a higher school, we have a higher school perspective, but I think most of our day is spent in reifying things and assenting to conventional appearances, you know, the, the veiled appearances of conventional truths. Um, but the, the beautiful thing is by going through these teachings, then we, we, put more ammunition, more deeper imprints on our mind stream so that there will be these little voices that pop up and say, 
that couldn't possibly inherently exist. If it inherently exists, it couldn't change, or, you know, things like that that will start. And also what comes to my mind is the, the beautiful opportunity we had last winter in looking at the four establishments of mindfulness and investigating how does the body exist? How do feelings exist? How does the mind and phenomena exist? And I, I found that just by knowing more about their conventional nature and focusing on that, that there was naturally more space in the mind to entertain the fact that they don't inherently exist. Yeah, so I really take His Holiness's point, you know, that the more we can investigate in whatever way, you know, just thinking about this has causes and conditions, this has parts, we can all start at that level. Um, but it's a, a lot of mindfulness, isn't it? Because we also need to be mind, mindful of our precepts and mindful of our precious human rebirth and mindful of death throughout the day and mindful of karma and, you know, mindful of suffering, true suffering, true cause of suffering, mindful of the afflictions. There's a lot to be mindful of. And we're building up our capacity to be able to hold more and more mindfulness of these topics so that eventually our behavior will reflect that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, anything else? Yeah, thanks for just reviewing too what Guy Newland wrote in Appearance and Reality. It's just such a helpful resource in his book mm. on the two truths. What helped me a lot this time was your slide, just uh, pointing out how the different schools see the external world. Um, and it's interesting you put that square bracket, right, with the Vaibhashika and Sautantrika, what appears to be an independent, objective world. Um, the problem is that that school and us, I mean, we don't see this as conventional, right? <laughs> a functioning thing is the ultimate truth. That's how I live my life. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah. And to recognize that that is conventional, right? As in, you know, to actually shift the definition in your own mind to the prasangika view of functioning things. Uh-huh. It's like a huge step. I don't know. Maybe that slide just helped me get that. It's like, yeah, I see functioning things as ultimate truths, the way the South Tantricas apparently um, that's the definition, isn't it? Right? <laughs> yeah. Of ultimate truths. And that, yeah, I do not see those as conventions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyhow. <laughs> You're not alone. Um, I actually prepared this review two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago, a little bit more than two weeks ago. And as I was reading through those two books, I was really impacted by it. Um, not so much today because it's a little bit stale now. But when I was reading the material, um, yeah, it's, it's, it does hit you like, oh, right, this, this, isn't, this doesn't exist the way it appears. Um, I remember it, there are times where when I think about the definition of attachment, uh, it's a mental factor that, um, what is it, mental factor? Yeah. But the definition is it's it's a mental factor that um, apprehends a contaminated object. See, there, again, it's like, what? Contaminated object? Everything we engage is a contaminated object for us because of the ignorance in our mind. That that can be very helpful in cutting the attachment. Oh, yes, th this beautiful lemon ginger is it's um, contaminated for me. <laughs> Not because I'm drinking it, but because, <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, it's quite delicious and very helpful for the tickle in my throat. But um, everything that we engage 
is a contaminated object. That's why it's so easy. If we don't understand that, it's, it's why it's so easy for us to have attachment for things. This exaggeration of true existence is so, so right there. And the only thing that's going to help us break out of that is to constantly put these things in front of our mind to open up some space. So I really appreciate, even though it's difficult studying anything about emptiness, <laughs> usually, um, and especially if it involves tenets, it's so worthwhile for us. So we're very fortunate to have someone of Geshe's caliber to walk us through these tenets. And the onus is on us to review our notes and really pull out the main pieces. Um, so we'll try to do our best. Okay, anything else? Otherwise, we'll finish there today. So I'll make the corrections on the slides, and then we'll post them online if people are interested in that. So let's rejoice that we had this time this morning to put our minds in virtue. We started with a bodhicitta motivation and a little bit of awareness of emptiness. And so we have accumulated um, some merit. And so let's dedicate that merit in the most far-reaching way that we know how. <laughs>